When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Lit Up. On this week's episode, we have Vicky LaRue Harvey. Now, she has written her first book in her mid-70s. And even though we don't like to talk about age on the show, it's pretty remarkable. It's an absolutely exquisite memoir called The Erratics. Now, we'll get into the show, but I was lucky enough to interview Vicky at her home Um, It was one of those windy days, and apparently she told me that on days like that when the wind is howling, particularly, I think, in Arles in France where Van Gogh, you know, cut off his ear, they actually don't perform surgeries on that day because it makes people crazy, the winds. So I don't know if that affected our conversation, but it was a great one. A few things about Vicky's book because we do launch straight into the conversation It's about her and her sister's journey to go back to Alberta, um, a small, small prairie community outside of Alberta, Canada. Now, Vicky and her sister were disinherited um, by their parents. And we start with Vicky getting a letter from her mother, who she hasn't seen in over 18 years, saying very dramatically that she should come because their father is dying. Now, what What unfolds is that um, they go to visit and realise that, in fact, their mother has been starving their father. He doesn't have cancer. He isn't dying by his own means, but the mum has been starving him. And they only know that because when the mum falls and breaks her hip and has to go into rehabilitation and the two girls go back to be with their father, you know, all of a sudden he starts eating, putting on weight and really coming to his senses. So this is where we start the book. I don't know how to explain how a book can be at once disturbing and so funny. It's one of the most original things I've read and you'll hear that Vicky is one of the most original women on the planet. So enjoy this episode. Vicky, thank you so much for having me. I'm in your home and it's one of those wild and windy days, which you've just told me in France, they wouldn't schedule operations on a day like today because it makes people too nuts. This is what I've been told. I hope that's true. So who knows where our conversation will go, but we have Max the cat as our third wheel and you've told him not to say anything. Yes, he must not speak. Uh, But I adored your book uh, in ways that I I haven't uh, responded or connected to a book in so long. There's a quote uh, that I think you've said, and it is, we all have families and families are all nuts in some ways. Oh, yes. I did say that on national television. I'm a little bit sorry about that. Oh, really? I think it's fabulous and so comforting. Well, I do believe that to be true. I am extremely wary of someone who looks at me rather defensively and said, Oh, well, you know, that's interesting, but I had a perfectly normal, loving family. And I think, sit down, have you got 15 minutes? I'm going to show you how you didn't. And then I think, how could you be that cynical? But I'm not cynical. I just think by the nature of glomming together a bunch of people, anything can happen. These people do not necessarily go together. So I do think that over time, also with 
the pressures of raising children and financial things that happen to people and relocations and and current affairs and, you know, Donald Trump's and various things that affect us all personally as well as globally, the pressures on relationships and families in particular are terrible. And they crack, you know, all of them crack somewhere. And so I think all families have problems. I do. I think it's in the nature of the animal. I don't think it can be different. (laughs) And at this stage when you were coming home and you had this, um, you were driving and you saw the erratics and had these thoughts, you hadn't seen your mother and father for 18 years. Was that right around this time? I had had, there is a big flashback in the Mm. middle of the book. So a year before the little tale that I tell in the book, I had made a lightning visit to Canada and I had actually spent one night with my parents. Um, My mother had sent me a little note, which she never did. I hadn't heard from her for almost two decades before that. It was June and it said, your father's asked me to write and thank you for the Christmas present because in spite of myself every year, I sent them a Conservation Society um, date book, you know, with lovely photos of Australia in it. Every year I sent it. I never heard if it got there. I presumed it was picked up at the mail and dropped in the ditch by my mother. But I did it every year. It was like just a little reaching out. (laughs) And... Suddenly this year I get this note saying, your father wants me to thank you for the Christmas gift. And it's June, you know, and I thought this is weird, but everything was weird. And she said, he can't write. If you wanted to see him, the time would be now. And I thought, I don't know if that's true. So I started trying to phone and I didn't get answers. She wouldn't answer the phone. My dad turned his his um, hearing aid off. And he didn't hear the phone for years, didn't hear anything. I think it was the only way he could live. And um, my sister and I got worried and we sent the Mounties out. That's the police who were in the country in Canada, well, that part of Canada. And they knocked on the door and my mother did open the door and said everything was fine, let them step inside. My father actually spoke. Um, But we weren't... At ease, we thought they're in the country, they're isolated, nobody goes there, they could be dead on the floor, you know, they're in their 90s. So I said to my sister, I'm going, and we had a little disagreement about whether I should, she thought it was dangerous. So the middle section of the book is actually that visit a year before, not quite a year before my mother broke her hip, but I only saw them for the briefest of time, and basically my mother did not want me anywhere near them. So I knew they were alive and I had seen them. But for two decades before that, we'd been disowned, disinherited. My sister tried to keep in touch with them more, but basically they weren't answering the phone, you know? So we didn't know and they had no friends. My mother had isolated them so efficiently. So, and I can't explain why I decided I had to go and make sure they were not dead or just lying on the floor. because I hadn't been treated very well and I really hadn't, my sister and I, I mean, you wondered, did you do something to bring this upon yourself when your parents reject you that thoroughly? I think my father just let my mother do what she wanted. He just was trying to survive at this point and my mother was not, she was not a sane person. So there's no... There's no explaining it anyway. It just was what it was. But something in me still, I think more for my father than for my mother, whom I really had very little feeling for. There was kind of a frozenness about anything between the two of us. Um, But I was worried about my dad because he had been um, a businessman, a man with a lot of contacts, a very gregarious person, and I could not understand why he was holed up on this property. It didn't seem possible that he would choose that. So I went, yeah. And there's a sentence where you say, blood calls to blood, and it feels like that inexplicable feeling that yes. Yes. you just do it. Yeah. It just seemed to me the same way it seemed the right thing to me when my mother died and 
my sister really did not want to deal with the ashes. And she said, I'll just tell them to put them where they put people who don't have any family. And I said, no, no, you won't. I mean, you don't have to deal with it. I'll deal with it. But I think we have to do the decent thing we would do for anyone that we would know of in this situation. You would want a person to have a place to rest. I mean, I don't believe in an afterlife. I do not believe in God. But I believe that you show a minimum of human respect to anyone. You should. And that if you someone has died, there are ashes, they're wrapped up in polystyrene in some back room of a funeral home. I think you think, who was this person? Can I make a mark on the world to say this person was here in case somebody wants to come and see them? You know, so I had my mother's ashes put in a cemetery in in a columbarium, you know, with the little boxes for the ashes in a beautiful cemetery in Okotoks, which is the village near their property. And it felt like the decent right thing to do, irrespective of the fact she was my mother. But I think you do, to your best extent, what is humanly decent at any given junction in your life. I really think we have to think about these things. It's fascinating in the book because your mother isolates herself and your father and the pain of um, accepting that your father went along with it yes. is th- is threaded throughout the book and something that you grapple with. But then there's this other side to her when she's in the um, recovering in the um, rehabilitation facility yeah. and you do talk about this uh, aura, this charisma, this... Yes this power she had over people. Yes. When you walked into the rehabilitation facility and claimed to be her daughter, what was the reaction? Oh, well, yes, we walked in, my sister and I, and uh, my mum had just been transferred from the hospital where she was operated on to this prairie hospital where she'd do her rehab, which was a rehab hospital. And... um, It was early evening when we got there, but the visiting hours were until nine or something. We went to the desk and asked where she was, and the nurse was busy with paper, and she just didn't even look up. She said, who are you? And we said, we're her daughters. And she didn't look up. She said, no, you're not. And I thought, okay, yes, we we know we are. (laughs) It's not possible we're not. And she added... Um, this nurse added, she only had one daughter. That daughter died a long time ago. She doesn't have any children. And my sister reacted very strongly, and this surprised me because I was just trying to think, okay, how rationally I was thinking, I've got my passport, I can show her. <laughs> Being rational, I thought. And my sister just sort of, yelled at the woman and she said, look at me. And this woman looked up and she said, my sister said, do I look dead? (laughs) The woman sort of went, "Uh." and then I thought, well, that's not fair. And I said to my sister, my sister, why do you get the person who existed? You know, if there was one child, why is it you? Why isn't it me? I was there first. You know, I was born first. You came after. And why do you get to be that dead person? Why can't I be the dead person? This, this three-year-old discussion in front of this, it was ridiculous. And I mean, we, not every single day, but every visit, and I used to go three times a year, at least twice, and spend weeks, several weeks. Every visit, we would have several of these very, very ludicrous things because my mother was a fabulator. She had a personality disorder, which is a very severe mental impairment. And I'm sure it was hell for her to live, too. I don't know if she knew that she was telling stories and that I I have no idea. I mean, there there is not a lot known about what causes personality disorders. They don't seem to be genetic. There's no suggestion they run in families. It may be trauma at birth. It may be a combination of things. It may be trauma in very early life. But the people afflicted with this um, 
do amazingly crazy things and they have complete entitlement and they have um, absolute right on their side. They know everything. These people are resistant to treatment because they know they're right. You can't, you can't modify the way they feel or the way they behave. So they often have a sureness about them, a charm about them. And my mother was like that. She could convince people of darn near anything. Did you have to ask your sister at one point if you had lived in Venezuela? Oh, yeah, I had um, jet lag at that point. And the social worker was interviewing us. She asked us to come in and and we were reeling. I mean, we'd come to this big house which had been a ranch house before my parents were not country people. They'd bought a part of a ranch, including the house, with about 20 acres around it because that's the amount of space my father said you had to put around my mother. And they lived there and planted it with trees and lawns and it was gorgeous. But there was this big house and we had walked into this big house where my mother had hoarded stuff and the thing had a bomb shelter and it had two furnaces and it was crazy. So I was reeling. I had jet lag. We went in and we're sitting there realizing we're talking to a very young social worker who has been told by my mother that we are very bad people. And she's trying to figure out, and she's trying to do her job, and I had utmost sympathy with her. She's trying to understand if when my mother has had her rehab for this broken joint, if she can go home or if we're actually going to kill her or something. Because she'd said that she hadn't seen us for years, which was true. Um, and that she had asked Interpol to find me in Colombia. Um <laughs> And so I'm torn between wanting to help her do her job and at the same time I do need to convince her that my mother may not be telling the truth, but she was so convincing and this poor little girl. I could see this situation clearly and I'm just sitting there trying to answer questions and at one point she said to me, I think she asked me, did I resent my mother? Because my mother, they were having trouble with her. She was tearing the place apart. She said, she can be a little difficult and she can be demanding. And I said, mm. And she said, you must have felt some resentment. And I'd said to my sister, we have to just play a straight bat. We have to say, look, she can be difficult. But, you know, if we say she's always been crazy, they'll say, okay, well, she did fine for years out there crazy. Take her back. I said, we have to let them know that now she can't look after herself and she's going to do my father harm. So we need to be careful of what we say. We're not going to tell lies, but we need to be careful of how we put things. And so this young woman, I said, no, I don't have resentment because my mother was a cultivated woman and and she opened doors for me. You know, I speak different languages. I, I read, I got an education. These are things that happened because of her and I'm grateful for those things that have made me who I am. My sister has a different view on these things, but that's actually how I felt. And she said, oh, yes, and you live different parts of the world. And I thought, not so much when I lived with my family. We lived in Canada. She said, you must have so enjoyed Venezuela. And I just thought, oh, God, <laughs> I can't remember if we, if we didn't. And my sister was eavesdropping, and I caught up, and I opened the door, and I whacked her in the face with the door. I didn't mean to. I didn't know she was there. And she sort of staggered in, and I said to her, did we ever live in Venezuela? And she said, no, no, we lived in a lot of places, but we never lived in Venezuela. And I said to the girl, no, I did not enjoy Venezuela. I've never <laughs> lived there. And this did not encourage her to think I wasn't completely what my mother was saying I was, you know, because I just looked uncertain if I'd ever lived in Venezuela. At that point, I kind of was. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yes. But when I, you know, get home and have a cup of coffee and look at this experience, I mean, sometimes my sister and I just laughed because you kind of had to, you know. There were things that were funny at the same time. They were symptomatic of very difficult things, you know. So, And the relationship between you and your sister is such 
it's so beautifully wrought in this book. Oh, thank you. And <laughs> and yet you're such different people. Yes. And there's a beautiful way you describe both of you. Um, with you, if you scratch below the surface, mm-hmm. there's grief. But if you scratch below her surface, there's rage. Yes. I'm wondering, did you have to go through rage or was that not part of your coming to a certain acceptance? I don't think rage is part of my makeup. Mm. Um, I get angry in a kind of volcano kind of way about things, about world affairs, about things and about personal things. But... I think probably it has to do with my character and my sister's character. I think we just came with different wirings. But I think also it has to do with the fact that I was the first child in this situation and that expressing anger was not something you were able to do because my mother was a very, very angry person and very unhappy with her lot in life. Whatever that lot would have been, she would have been unhappy. And I think... Um, it was just not my way of dealing with things. And I've looked into this because you often wonder when you've had a childhood that felt out of the ordinary, and I'm sure that's true of absolutely every human on the earth. We all think our upbringing had something that was, you know, either magically wonderful or terrible, or you ask yourself the question, who is the person I would have been if I had not had that formative experience? And I had years of this very peculiar upbringing. Well, it wasn't an upbringing. I was not brought up in any way whatsoever. Um, But exposure to this particular pathology, and you wonder who you would have been. I think, actually, I would have always been a kind of contained person, and I think my sister would have been someone more impulsive. I think that's in our nature, but I think it was also cemented in place by having to deal with the situation we had. And we are very, very different. There's also a part where you talk about, it's quite a um, a violent scene in the book where your ponytail is mm. cut off. Yes. And what your mother whispered to you mm. when that mm. occurred. Yeah. She tended to have this very effective theatrical whisper. You know, she'd come up quite close and then she'd do this kind of stage whisper thing. It was kind of terrifying and um, because it conveyed the idea that she was going to say something that the rest of the world didn't need to hear, that this was just aimed exactly at you. And she said to me, because I was looking at a magazine and uh, I had long hair and my hair is out of control most of the time, And I'd work on putting it back smooth into a ponytail. And for some reason, there was this insistence, I keep long hair. And I was looking at a teen magazine. I still remember it was called Seventeen. It was a magazine for teenage girls. And I was seeing pictures of people with short hair, kind of the Audrey Hepburn thing, you know. I just said out loud, I'm thinking about maybe short hair, you know. And my mother must have been sewing and she just came up with her sewing shears and she just kind of whispered, you want short hair, do you? I'll give you short hair. And she just grabbed my ponytail and sheared it off. And her sewing scissors were formidable. I mean, you weren't allowed to borrow them to cut anything. They were proper scissors for fabric. And she just went right, I've got thick hair, but she went right through it and... That must have been an extremely shocking experience for me because I can't remember what happened after that for quite some time. And um, I can remember the sort of terror. I really can. And I felt a small wash of that come over me. I think I wrote about it in the book at a time when there was a thing called a patient conference when my mother had been or was in the process of being assessed to be kept in a faculty, in a facility. And she came around a corner in a wheelchair being pushed by a nurse. And she was dressed for battle. You know, she had on the hat and she was dressed. She knew how to dress. And I just felt a wash of terror go over me. And I was a woman in my 60s at the time, you know. 
I could feel that old feeling. It was what she inspired. Yeah. It's a difficult thing when it's your mom. Mm. Yeah. And also your sister, you talk about that she has memories of that. And it was interesting to think about a family dynamic, how the coping mechanism is Mm. to block out Mine those was, memories. not my yeah. sister's. Yeah. And yet she didn't do that. She tells me she remembers a lot more physical incidents and I don't. I believe my mother was violent physically. I know she was. But my sister remembers more of that being vented upon me than I do. I suspect at some points my father stepped in because... I was never taken to hospital with broken bones, and she was violent. Um, Social services didn't come and take us away from her. So I presume my father stopped this from getting to a certain point where it would have become public policy to protect these children. I think we did get knocked around a bit, but I remember specific things and not others. My sister seems to remember more a continuum of this. So you cope with it however you can, you know. I blocked. When you became a young woman that could go to university, was there a sense growing up that you had, you just had to get through a certain period and you would have freedom or was it not... As explicit as that. I don't know that I was, I don't know if it was as clear as that. Uh, The first year I went to university, I was living at home. And that was the year my mother decided she should go to university too. She hadn't gone to university as a young person. And when I enrolled, she enrolled. So that was interesting. (laughs) It was a small campus. It was a new campus of the University of Alberta. And I arranged to get transferred to the older one, which was in a different city the next year, because that was not good at all. So I don't know that I planned how to be free, but I saw that opportunity because I'd been pushed academically and in other ways. But part of my mother's disorder was, I don't think, actually recognizing that I was a separate person. So my achievements were hers. And then when I went to uni, she kind of had to see that. I think that's why she enrolled too. You've spoken about how your mum did inspire um, many of the positive things in your life too, a love of literature and languages and all of these things. Well, she didn't inspire so much as impose. Oh, yes. Um, Okay. Because... And this has been one of my enduring problems in life is setting my own goals because I never did. Um, She said to me, you will play the piano. She was a pianist and she'd been a good one, but she shot herself in the foot with her character when she went back east to Toronto to study at the conservatory as a young woman. They'd basically send her back home and said, come back when you're not four years old. She was a very, very good musician, but she was impossible to deal with. So she said to me, you will study music, you will play the piano, you will play the flute, you will also, my father was a sportsman, so my father said you will also ski, you will ski downhill, which I to this day dislike intensely, and you will do this and you will do that, and I was the busiest kid that ever happened. I mean, when people talk about tiger mums now, and I look at their kids' schedules, and this is, I think, boy... I can top that. Um, But it was horrible. It was absolutely horrible. I was sleep deprived and it was, I did not like any of the things I was doing. When I got to university age, my mother said, you can study French or music. Those are your choices. It wasn't, what do you think you might like to do? Um, Having just made sure that I went through year 12 studying everything I would ever know, even if I wanted to do molecular biology. So I did physics and calculus and the whole business in year 12, just in case she decided I should study something else. But we got to that point and she said, you can study French or you can study music. And I thought, okay, really had it with the music thing. I'll study French. So I enrolled in French, not through a love of it, but because that was the path, you know, that was what I had to do. So I did that. 
um, I did take a psychology course as an option in my first year at university, and I loved it. Obviously, I was interested in pathology, and um, I would have loved to continue that. And I mentioned that, and that caused a huge kerfuffle. That was not going to happen. And at that point, I think when that was not going to be an option for me, I thought, okay, I really need to leave. I'm 18. I have to go somewhere else. The way to do that was through excelling, which was the sort of baseline position you had to do well. And I did well in that first year in French, and from then on I never went back. But I didn't plot anything. No. I just, at some point, this opportunity to go somewhere presented itself. And I thought, okay, I need to go there. I need to get away. Because it was getting crazier. I mean, your mother doesn't usually go to university with you and act the way she did. So, you know, there was no kind of autonomous experience for me at university, which there should be for a young person. I was dealing with the fallout from my mother, and we had the same first name. Our first name was Jacqueline, both of us, for some reason. I don't know why that was my name, too. That was her name. And we got mixed up on the forms. And she took the same course as I did, and it was hell on wheels. I mean, it was absolute... It was Kafka in Alberta. You know, this doesn't happen. And I think I knew that at that point it was only going to get crazier and that I was 18, I could go. And I did. And I left my sister behind by herself. She was 12. So oh, it's so difficult, but you had to go. Well, I don't think I actually thought. Oh. I think I was absolutely in survival mode. Because there was no way to survive in that particular situation. As an adult, there was no reason to stay. So I had the right reflex, but my sister found herself alone in the house with these people. Yeah. And when you went to France, what did it start to feel like when you found freedom? Or did you have, do you have any of those clear moments? You know, when well, you realize. I was actually just following the track because. I went to university and I was a very good student because that had been demanded of me and I was capable of it, thank goodness. If my parents had had children with learning difficulties or something, I actually wonder if those children would have survived. Um, but I could perform and my success could be my mother's success. So that was okay. I was kind of tolerated. But um, I'd started in French. I'd applied for... A, an honors program in French because that was my major. I was on the French road, you know. It was hard to get off it at that point. I got scholarships. I got uh, a one-year thing to go to France to do something that resembles a dip ed. Uh, so I went after I finished my BA. I went to France for a year, and I really liked it. I liked Paris very much. I went back to Alberta and did my master's, and then I got a fellowship to do my PhD and went back to France. I had a five-year fellowship to do my PhD. So I went back, and at that point, I really had, after a couple of years, had no intention of going back to Canada. I finished my PhD, but I did not want to be an academic. I didn't like what I'd seen of academic life. I didn't particularly like what it looked like when you were a long-term academic and I wanted something different and I finished my degree because I finished what I start in life and then I did something different. And so was that when you were a, a translator then? Yes, or? I got other jobs. I thought, what can I do? And in France, when you've done your first doctorate, if you want to teach at university, then you do a second doctorate, which took you another 10 or 15 years. And I thought, no, no, no. <laughs> I, I'd met my future husband. I had no intention of devoting the rest of my life to doing that. I enjoyed my studies, but they were not fueled by any desire to study that particular field. If my mother had pointed me at quantum physics, I would have done that and ended up in Silicon Valley. I just was doing what I was told to do at the point where I had no choice and found that once I was on that treadmill, it just kept going. 
So I kept going. And because one of my difficulties as a young adult was in defining what I personally might like to do because I had absolutely no experience of doing that. So it was kind of easier to go along with that path, which was an enjoyable one, and I did. And what in the years since have you decide, Have you found that is just yours to like? Well, writing. Right. Yeah, writing. Um, surprisingly, when I moved to Australia in 1988, I had worked as various things in France, a translator, a report editor. I tried just before we decided to move from France to Australia... I decided to try to set up a French uh, uh, translation agency in France. And the admin and the red tape and the paperwork was such that it was not possible. And so when I came down here, I thought, I wonder what it's like if I tried it here. Everything seemed more relaxed. So I phoned up, I found a number for something, the business bureau or something, called them up and said, I'm thinking of setting up a little translation agency. I'm a qualified translator. And they said, oh, cool. Yeah, go for it. And I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and they said, yeah, well, there's a form. Um, you know, I'll, we'll send you the form and then just fill that out and we'll give you a number and good luck. And I thought, holy cow, <laughs> I love this place. So I was going to do that. And just on a whim, I sent my CV because I thought I'm, qualified to teach at university. I've never done it, but I'm qualified to do this job. I'll just send out my CV. So I sent my CV to all the universities in Sydney. And I got a phone call about four days later from the French department at Macquarie saying, could you start Tuesday? And I said, you know, okay, but you haven't sort of vetted me. You'd don't you want to see my diplomas? I mean, I could be anybody. And they said, no, I mean, why would you do that? And I thought, well, why indeed? But um, I guess eventually they did ask to see them, but they were very trusting. And um, I said, okay, but what do you want me to do Tuesday? I'm an 18th century specialist. And they said, oh, no, we're not doing that this year. Can you do this, this, and this? And I taught everything at Macquarie for 18 years and enjoyed it immensely. Um except 18th century literature. I never taught that. Um, I did literary translation for years, which I adored um, teaching that. That was fabulous. And I did language acquisition people who were beginning. Um, I taught the existential novel. I taught all kinds of stuff, which I enjoyed and which I could do, but I never taught in my specialty. And I did that for 18 years, and I loved the teaching. I loved the kids. I really did. And then writing for yourself, you said that that's the love. Well, that's the one thing that belongs to me. And I think you kind of come to some bottom line realizations in your life. And one of them was for me because of the way I grew up that I felt secure when I had my feet on something that was mine and that was solid. And I found that for me, writing was what was where I felt like, I mean, I belonged, I've belonged to various writing groups over the years and I really like getting the critique of my fellow writers because I've been in groups where I respected these people very much. But it doesn't necessarily sway me. It depends. It may. But I'm standing on solid ground. I'm a conscious kind of writer. And I know what I meant to put on the page. And it always makes me laugh when somebody says, you forgot the inverted commas for direct speech. I said, no, I didn't forget anything. I don't use them. It's a choice. I don't like the way the page looks with inverted commas for direct speech. I do a lot of dialogue. I don't use them. I didn't forget. Thanks for reminding me, but I didn't forget. <laughs> it's a choice. <laughs> so I feel... I think I'm quite a diffident person in lots of other ways, but 
I'm just standing on solid ground with my own writing because I know what I meant to put down. I'm very conscious of what I meant to put on the page. I mostly write poetry. And you have to be very sure of what you actually want on the page when you do that because you don't have a lot of words to do it. I did a a writing workshop shortly after I moved here, years ago in the 80s. And I'm trying to remember, I think it was Sue Wolfe who did this Saturday lecture on something or other and some aspect of writing. And I remember her saying, I'm almost certain it was Sue Wolf. And she looked at somebody and she read something they'd written. There were about 12 of us in the room. And she said, look, you know, there's this, this rings true, this rings true. And then she just looked at all of us and she said, just be yourself. It's quicker. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. Such good advice. It's wonderful it? advice. I mean, in any area, but in writing especially. You can't be on the page somebody you're not, you know. And I was interviewed by by Sasha Horler, who's somebody I love. Um, I've always so liked what she does. And at a bookshop in Sydney, and she said one of her questions to me was, weren't you tempted to make yourself look a little better in the book? You know, I mean, not physically, but, you know, put yourself in a better light. And I said, it's a memoir. You can't. For some reason, I kept the boarding passes from my trips to Canada. I don't know why. I had them in an envelope and I went a number of times over those six years to stay with my dad. And I kept my boarding passes. So when I went to write and I thought, I wonder, did I go that year? How many times did I go that year? And I was just trying to get the timeline to make sense to to myself. I had the boarding passes, you know? So go figure. (laughs) I've still got them. (laughs) I'm not sure if you still teach, but are you... No, I'm retired. No. Are you teaching ethics, though? I'm no longer, no. I did that for a couple of years, and I enjoyed that very much because when I retired from university, I decided that I wanted to, you know, there are expressions that make me cringe, like give back, you know, but I thought, okay, I'll have more time. I can do something. And I really did feel that the um, the primary ethics program that was being put in schools by the um, by uh, Simon Longstaff and these wonderful people at Sydney Uni. I thought that's such a good thing to do because I'd been very shocked when I moved here to find that there was an hour a week where people from churches could go into public schools. I mean, this would not happen in France. We separate church and state so radically in France. And I was surprised at this and not really pleased by the fact that there was religion in public schools, not that you had to do, but that was there in that space. And I thought, well, then ethics should be there too for people who don't want to choose that their child go to a, a, a Catholic class or a whatever, you know, fine. You should have freedom of religion, but this should not be in public schools, or at least there should be a choice to do something that is not affiliated to a church. And I believe that choice is very important. So I thought, okay, I'll do the little training and I'll do that. And that was a wonderful experience. It was so very different from um, teaching at university. The first weeks were very hard because I thought when you've had a an amphitheater of freshmen on Monday morning at nine who are probably some of them hungover and some of them are, you know, asleep. <laughs> some of them are stroppy. I thought I can handle anything. But these kids were little, you know. And I was responsible. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. It was quite challenging. And trying to get them to understand that I wasn't a teacher, that I was just there and we were going to sit in a circle and we're going to talk about something, but that they had to listen to their classmates and we had to try and make some kind of sense of the things we were talking about. It was lovely. It was great, and it gives you some hope because kids do, once they get used to the process, they've got good instincts, you know, and they're usually willing to leave a space for someone else to think something different. So I really think we have to encourage that. And do you find that children are so much more 
open to all the possibilities than adults are. I feel like we get hardened to things. I think we are by the force of things. I do. But um, I went and did an event about a month ago in Melbourne for the Stella Foundation, which has a schools program. And they go into secondary schools and they talk to children and ask what the children are reading, and especially in years 11 and 12. And they ask them to reflect upon um, the type of books that are chosen for them on the curriculum. And in particular, are there any women writers and are there any Australian women writers? And very often children have gone through school. I know that when I went through, this is, you know, last century, middle of last century, when I came out of high school, um, I had not read any Canadian women writers. We didn't, you know. I was steeped in everything right up to and including Ernest Hemingway, but I'd never read Margaret Atwood or anybody else. We didn't do that. Now it's changed. I know at university the courses are different, thank goodness. But still in high school, sometimes people are not reading a lot of women's writing or especially Australian writing. So there's two issues there. And I went and did this this um, event in Melbourne where I met a panel of girls from um, Melbourne Girls Grammar. And there were six of them and they interviewed me. And I thought, oh, there is hope for the world. You know, these girls were sharp. They had really incisive, intelligent questions to ask somebody. And a wonderful teacher that had come with them. And I thought, okay, there are days when I feel like we really are going to hell in a handbasket, but we're not because these young people are coming up and they are remaining open to things in a way, in ways that I felt got shut down for me. Now, that was a very long time ago, but still for my children occasionally, were these doors were not open to them. And I think now there's a much greater, and they're demanding it, you know, it's a snowball. So, yes, I mean, the answer is yes, children are more open. They do get hammered into shape by life, but that's life. But there is a way to keep those doors open. And I think some of it is happening. Yeah. I think a lot of people are inspired by your story of publishing a book, you know, after having many other careers and I guess later in life. Yes. What is the next endeavour in terms of um, the next book you're dreaming about writing? Mm. Are you deep in that process already? Um, I'm wishing now, a year after, a little more than a year after first publishing The Erratics, which was published by a small publisher and then had a very interesting publishing history and has turned out very well for me. Um, I wish that I had plunged myself more into something else quicker, but there was an awful lot going on and I didn't. There are things I want to do. And yes, I was definitely, when you look at the Stella Prize long list, for example, the youngest person on that list of 12 people was Jamie Marina Lau, who wrote a remarkable book, and she's 20. And then there was me on the other end. And uh, I found, I got a lot of questions about how old I actually was. <laughs> and I thought, would you please just read the book? <laughs> um but yes, I do have projects. Um, I found out just because my daughter did a little bit of research when she had the flu a year or so ago. She's been curious about my mother's family. My father, my grandfather was French, or at least that was the story we had in the family, that he had emigrated to the U.S. from France with his parents. As it turns out, that's not true at all. And the one story that I believed was true about my family, which was my grandfather arriving from France. I knew he was a French speaker. I knew him until I was eight. He died when I was eight, and I loved him dearly. Um, that story, which everyone, my father told me that story, everyone, that was a given, that was true. 
that's the least true of any of it. I mean, I never trusted anything I was told by my mother. She fabulated. I really didn't believe almost anything you told me about my family um, or that my mother told me or anyone told me, basically. But that bit I believed because I knew he was a French speaker. He was actually descended from or part of a group in Canada called the Métis, which are one of Canada's three recognized indigenous groups. They are the descendants of the French fur traders who were sent by the kings in the 17th century to get furs in Canada and bring them back to France. Some of them, the fur traders, decided to stay on in Canada. Why, I do not know. They couldn't have arrived in winter because, my God, you would not stay. But some of them stayed. Some of the Scottish people sent out to get furs also stayed, and they have a separate group of people too. They married Indigenous women, and these my grandfather was part of the group that descended from this, and they have maintained a separate culture. They even endeavoured at one point to set up self-government in the province of Manitoba and be an independent nation, uh, and it is still a vibrant culture, and I'm now in contact with a number of people who call themselves my cousins because we are descended from common ancestors here. And this is something I absolutely did not know. And it's one quarter of my heritage, so it's not. And I have no claim to this culture because I did not grow up in it. I don't know much about it, a little bit that I've learned over the last couple of years. But I think it's quite fascinating to find that actually you do have roots to your country in a way that you didn't know you did. And I find this quite fascinating to sort of think about who we think we are and where we think we come from, if we think about that at all. And to then find that it's different from what you might have imagined, does that make a difference or doesn't it to who you think you are or to what you feel about how you define yourself, you know? And I'd like to think about that. I'm going to go to the U.S. and Canada next year and go to these places where my grandfather grew up, where he was part of this culture. And then he went off down through the United States, came back into Canada decades, a decade later. I have the document showing him coming across the border from the U.S. to Canada, having done this diversionary tactic to get away from his origins, having turned his back from what I understand on it, because he wanted to be a businessman. He was a go-getter, and he couldn't have, if he was partly indigenous, he couldn't. The prejudice is still such, but was such at that time. No one would have associated with him. So he went through the States, came back up through California. I've got the paper that says he entered into Canada as a young man, and it says, nationality French, and he wasn't, he was Canadian back to 1654, that's the first trace. It says nationality French, and they still had this on the papers. It says race, white. And he came back, and he made millions in the oil industry, lost them all gambling, made millions in the gold rushes, lost them all gambling. And I think, what a story, you know? Vicky, what a story. I need to go find out more about this. I'm just, I'm, I haven't scratched the surface. My daughter is very interested because she went back to university a couple of years ago and um, did a master's in translating and interpreting and became very interested in small language groups in France that we never talk about, but which are still living and separate. And then she was looking at this Canadian stuff and there is actually a language that is the language that developed from the Scottish fur traders who married Indigenous women. And it's a combination of Scots, Gaelic, and the Ojibwa language, which is the large language group of Indigenous people in the centre of Canada and the US. And it's called Mishif, and it's a separate language. And I'm a Canadian, I had never heard of Mishif. And she's looking at this and thinking, as a linguist... What an interesting thing. I said, you might have to go to the University of Manitoba and move to there for a while. But, you know, this is kind of fascinating. It is so fascinating. And we now have the means. And I have no reason to doubt the authenticity of the documents that my daughter found, because these are church records, which the churches in Quebec 
the ones where these records were did not burn down in France often records have been destroyed in fires these are extant there's you can look at them on the web and these families the first generation first boy always had the same name and you can follow them right through to my grandfather and I think, isn't this amazing? And I am now in contact on the web with a number of people who have grown up in that Métis culture and who refer to me as cousin. And and they say, they have a saying, they say we have, in my case with this one lady I correspond with, she says, we have the Grant connection. There was a gentleman called Cuthbert Grant and he is my fourth great-grandfather and also hers, but she's off on that branch of the tree and I'm down here. We're still, from her point of view, cousins. And it's fairly amazing, you know, to find this out. And I find it interesting, the things you can explore on a personal level about who you think you are and where you think you come from and what difference does it possibly make. But it seems to make a difference to us. So I want to look at that. It also comes back to that importance of giving your mother a place to rest so that future generations can understand her part in yes. their lineage. I think, and I am very sorry, when my parents, my parents' house was cleared so that it could be, there was a thing called an estate sale and I wasn't there, I was still working and my sister and some friends went to clear the house so that they could put things up for sale. There were a number of papers and photographs, and my sister, who has a different approach to the past than I do, had put a bunch of photographs and documents in a box, and she was going to burn them in the out on the prairie behind the house. And her partner said to her, hang on, have you asked Vicky if she'd like those things? And Irene did not want them. She did not want that connection with the past. She professes no interest in it. And her partner said, I don't think you should burn them. I think you should put that box away and ask your sister if she wants them. And I will eternally be grateful to this woman, my sister's partner, for saying that to her, because otherwise a number of the things that I am now going to use um, I would not have had, but I do did have a lot of photographs, some of which I gave to a, a museum in Alberta. Um, most of the people, most of the actors in all of this are dead, long dead. And there were photographs. There was no way, there was no one I could ask who these people were. And I know they will have been important, but I gave these photos to a museum because... Who knows? I mean, someone else may have a copy and may at some point do research and find out there was that. Um, but I, that was blocked. I could not actually find out who those people were. And that bothered me. So yes, I would like my parents to have a resting place. And not because I believe in anything about an afterlife or about anything, but I think of maybe if the human race survives half a century away, there may be a person who wants to find something out. So I'd like to leave all the traces I can I love that. for that person. Oh, Vicky, thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm so excited about the next book. Get going. I will. I will. I'm beginning to gear up. Thanks again. Thank you, Angela. Thank you for coming all this way. Oh. There are so many takeaways from this episode. I think the biggest one, though, is when Vicky talks about just having to be yourself. Like You can't escape yourself, and all you can do is be that person and do what's right for you. And I think in so many instances, she did what she needed to do. Blood called to blood. She had to go, even though she'd had such a torturous relationship with her mother and that for her the significance of having her mother buried in a dignified way meant that for generations to come people would know where their 
great-great-great-grandmother lived. So be yourself, do what feels right. I'm going to try and apply that to my own life. Thanks for listening. If you want to share your thoughts on this episode or if you've read Vicky's book and something struck you particularly, um, please let us know on social, both on Instagram and Twitter at Lit Up Show. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.